The following podcast contains graphic or extensive discussion of self-harming, such as self-inflicting injuries, suicide, and mental state of someone engaging in self-harming behavior. Listener's discretion is advised. Hey, Misfits. Today's episode is going to feature some pretty rough topics. I will have trigger warnings placed because the further we go in today's episode, the darker things are going to get. I'm going to be discussing depression and what it means to be passive and actively suicidal, and what it means to be in a crisis. Some segments may be too difficult for some listeners. If such topics are triggering, please feel free to skip either the segment or today's episode. The purpose of talking about depression and suicide is to explain to those who have never experienced it how it feels in hopes it will get them talking to loved ones. Also, for those who have experienced it, it's a way of letting them know they are not alone in their struggles. Depression ranges in seriousness from mild temporary episodes of sadness to severe persistent depression. There is also a level of depression so severe that it does not have an actual diagnostic name, but for those of us that have experienced it, call it crippling depression. Clinical depression is the more severe form of depression, also known as major depression or major depressive disorder. It isn't the same depression caused by a loss such as death of a loved one or a medical condition. To diagnose clinical depression, many doctors use the symptoms criteria for major depressive disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual on Mental Disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Association. Signs and symptoms of depression may include feelings of sadness, tearfulness, emptiness, or hopelessness, angry outbursts, irritability, or frustration, even over small matters, loss of interest or pleasure in most or all normal activities such as sex, hobbies, or sports, sleep disturbances including insomnia or sleeping too much, tiredness and lack of energy, so even the smaller tasks take an extra effort, reduced appetite and weight loss or increased cravings for food and weight gain, anxiety, agitation, or restlessness, slow thinking, feelings of worthlessness, guilt, fixating on past failures or self-blame, Trouble thinking, concentrating, making decisions, and remembering things. Frequent or recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, or committing suicide. Unexplained physical problems such as back pain or headaches. Many people believe that depression needs to be debilitating and cause significant problems in their life in order to seek help. What they don't realize is that some of the more subtle signs of this disorder are often the first indication that something is going on. Here are some examples of how depression may feel to you. Depression feels like there's no pleasure or joy in life. It's so much more than being sad. Depression robs people of things they once loved, and for many people, they feel like nothing will bring them joy again. Concentration and focus becomes much more difficult, which makes any kind of decision-making challenging. Sometimes people describe this being as in a fog, or they are unable to think clearly or follow what's happening around them. For many with depression, it feels like there's no way out. Everything feels hopeless, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. This can lead to a feeling of failure or worthlessness, and in more serious cases, it can lead to suicidal thoughts or actions. Depression also can have significant impact on your sleep. This often manifests as trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, frequent nighttime awakening, or feeling tired upon awaking despite getting an adequate amount of sleep. This can lead to a feeling of exhaustion and low energy, which can prevent people from even being able to get out of bed or perform daily activities like showering, eating, and brushing their teeth. And sometimes... It feels like nothing. No feelings, no thoughts. Just an endless black abyss of nothingness. 
Since depression is such a complex disorder, it can be difficult to define and diagnose with just one set of generalized criteria. Because of this, other categories define different types of depression. Other forms of depression include perinatal or prepartum depression, which occurs during pregnancy, postpartum depression, which occurs after pregnancy, seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, which features depressive episodes that come and go with the seasons. There's psychotic depression, which co-occurs with other forms of psychosis, a premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a severe extension of premenstrual syndrome. Major depressive disorder affects approximately 17.3 million American adults, or about 7.1% of the U.S. population, age 18 and older in a given year. Major depressive disorder is more prevalent in women than in men. 1.9 million children, ages 3 to 17, have been diagnosed with depression. Adults with depressive disorder or symptoms have a 64% greater risk of developing coronary artery disease. But have you ever wondered what causes clinical depression? Perhaps you've been diagnosed with major depression, and that's what made you question why some people get depressed and others don't. Depression is a complex disease. No one knows exactly what causes it, but it can happen for a variety of reasons. Some people have depression during a serious medical illness. Others may have depression with life changes such as moving or death of a loved one. Still, others have a family history of depression. Those who do may have depression and feel overwhelmed with sadness and loneliness for no known reason. Some of the reasons may be abuse. Physical, sexual, or emotional abuse can make you feel more vulnerable to depression later in life. People who are elderly are at a higher risk of depression. That can be made worse by other factors such as living alone and having a lack of social support. In certain medications, some drugs such as Topamax can increase your risk of depression and suicidal ideation. Sadness or grief after the death or loss of a loved one, though natural, can increase the risk of depression. Women are about twice as likely as men to become depressed. No one's sure why. The hormone changes that women go through at different times of their lives may play a role. A family history of depression may increase the risk. It's thought that depression is a complex trait, meaning there are probably many more different genes that each exert small effects, rather than a single gene that contributes to the disease risk. Problems such as social isolation due to other mental illness or being cast out of a family or social group can contribute to the risk of developing clinical depression. And sometimes, depression happens along with other major illnesses or may be triggered by another medical condition. Nearly 30% of people with substance misuse problems also have major or clinical depression. Even if drugs or alcohol temporarily make you feel better, they ultimately will aggravate depression. But as we know, depression is so much more than feeling down. It may physically change your brain. There's some debate about which areas are affected and how much. There's growing evidence that several parts of the brain shrink in people with depression. Specifically, these areas lose gray matter volume, or GMV. GMV loss may be higher in people who have regular or ongoing depression with serious symptoms. Studies show depression can lower GMV in the hippocampus, amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. When these areas don't work the right way, you might have memory problems, trouble thinking clearly, guilt or hopelessness, no motivation, sleep or appetite problems, anxiety, or you might also move or talk slowly or overreact to negative emotions. And experts aren't sure if depression or inflammation comes first, but people who have major depressive episodes have higher levels of translocator proteins. Those chemicals are linked to brain inflammation. Studies show these proteins are even higher in people who've had untreated major depressive disorder for 10 years or longer. Uncontrolled brain inflammation can hurt or kill the brain cells prevent new brain cells from growing, cause thinking problems, and speed up the brain aging. Scientists are still trying to answer whether or not the changes are permanent. 
Ongoing depression likely causes long-term changes to the brain, especially in the hippocampus. That might be why depression is so hard to treat in some people, but researchers also found less gray matter volume in people who were diagnosed with lifelong depressive disorder but hadn't been depressed in years. While more research is needed, there's hope that current or new treatments might help reverse or ward off some of the brain changes. Researchers have suggested that for some people, having too little of certain substances in the brain called neurotransmitters could contribute to depression. Restoring the balance of brain chemicals could help alleviate symptoms, which is where the different classes of antidepressants medications come in. Even with the help of medications that balance specific neurotransmitters in the brain, depression is a highly complex condition to treat. What proves to be an effective treatment for one person with depression may not work for someone else. Even something that has worked well for someone in the past may become less effective over time or even stop working. Researchers continue to try to understand the mechanisms of depression, including brain chemicals, in hopes of finding explanations for these complexities and developing more effective treatments. Depression is a multifaceted condition, but having an awareness of brain chemistry can be useful for medical and mental health professionals. As I've explained before, neurotransmitters are chemical messengers in the brain. The nerve cells of the brain use neurotransmitters to communicate with each other. The messages they send are believed to play a role in mood regulation. The space between two nerve cells is called the synapse. When cells want to communicate, neurotransmitters can be packaged up and released from one end of the presynaptic cell. As a packed neurotransmitter crosses the space, it can be taken up by receptors for a specific chemical purpose on postsynaptic cells. For example, serotonin receptors pick up serotonin molecules. If there are in excess molecules in the space, the presynaptic cell will gather them back up and reprocess them to use another communication. Each type of neurotransmitter can carry a different message and plays a unique role in creating an individual's brain chemistry. Imbalances in these chemicals may contribute to mental health conditions such as depression. The three neurotransmitters implicated in depression are dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. Dopamine creates positive feelings associated with reward or reinforcement that motivates us to continue with the task or an activity. Dopamine is believed to play an important role in a variety of conditions that affect the brain, including Parkinson's and schizophrenia. There is also evidence that reduced dopamine levels can contribute to depression in some people. When other treatments have failed, medications that affect the dopamine system are often added and can be helpful for some people with depression. Norepinephrine is both a neurotransmitter and a hormone. It plays an important role in the fight-or-flight response along with adrenaline. It helps send messages from one nerve cell to the next. Depression occurred when there was too little norepinephrine in certain brain circuits. Alternatively, mania results when there is too much of the neurotransmitter in the brain. Another neurotransmitter is serotonin, or the feel-good chemical. In addition to helping regulate your mood, serotonin has a number of different jobs throughout the body, from your gut to blood clotting to sexual function. In relation to its role in depression, serotonin has taken center stage in the past few decades, thanks to the advent of antidepressant medications like Prozac, and other selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. As their name implies, these medications specifically act on serotonin molecules. I know there's not necessarily a definition for severe depression or what other calls call crippling depression. Whenever you look up the term depression, all there really is for severe depression is the word clinical. That just doesn't give it justice. I'll tell you what I think crippling depression is since I've experienced it. This is the point where you begin to have the feelings of worthlessness and numb. You begin to cause yourself intentional harm and start looking for a way out. And this unfortunately is usually by suicide. I am putting in a trigger warning here because this is where things start to get heavy. This segment is the beginning of the downward spiral that starts with self-mutilation and ends with suicide. If you find this material to be triggering, please skip the segment. 
Okay, so by definition, self-mutilation is when you hurt yourself as a way of dealing with very difficult feelings, painful memories, or overwhelming situation and experiences without the intent of killing oneself. After self-harming, you may feel a short-term sense of release. That's because your distress is unlikely to have gone away. Self-harm can also bring up very difficult emotions and can actually make things worse. Even though there are always reasons underneath why someone hurts themselves, it is important to know that self-harm does carry risks. Once you have started to depend on self-harm, it can take a long time to stop. Some people describe self-harm as a way to express something that is hard to put into words. Turn invisible thoughts or feelings into something visible. Change emotional pain into physical pain. Reduce overwhelming emotions, feelings, or thoughts. Have a sense of being in control. To escape traumatic memories. Punish themselves for feelings and experiences. To stop feeling numb, disconnected, or dissociated or to express suicidal feelings and thoughts without taking their own life. There are lots of different forms of self-mutilation. Some people use the same one all the time. Other people hurt themselves in different ways at different times. It can be upsetting and potentially triggering to hear about how to self-harm. If you're feeling vulnerable at this moment, please skip ahead. Some ways that people self-harm can include cutting yourself, poisoning yourself, biting yourself, picking or scratching at your skin, burning your skin, hitting yourself or walls, misusing alcohol, prescription, and recreational drugs. If you do self-harm, it is important that you know how to look after your injuries and that you have access to the first aid equipment that you need. Please reach out to your doctor if you have any injuries that you do not know how to care for. If your doctor diagnoses you with suicidal ideation, it means that you've become preoccupied with the idea of suicide. You may regularly think about the way you would commit suicide or think about what life would be like if you weren't around. You may also replay the suicidal act out in your mind. It's important to know what warning signs to look out for if you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation. The sooner you recognize the signs, the sooner you can find the help that you need. If you're experiencing passive suicidal ideations, your fantasies may involve dying in your sleep or having a fatal accident. You may believe the world will be better off without you. Passive doesn't mean harmless. This train of thought has the potential to make you be more likely to put yourself in harm's way. Even if the passive suicidal ideation appears to be fleeting, the risk of suicide attempts is very real. The line between passive and active suicidal ideation is blurry. The transition from one to the other can happen slowly or suddenly, and it's not always obvious to the casual observer. Active suicidal ideation, on the other hand, is not only thinking about it, but having the intent to commit suicide, including planning on how to do it. While someone might admit to wishing to die, they may deny making plans to do so. Warning signs that suicidal ideation has become active include giving away personal possessions, getting affairs in order, and saying goodbye to loved ones. No one can ever predict with 100% certainty if someone will or will not take their own life. Even trained medical professionals can't predict who will commit suicide. This is why you need to take threats or thoughts of suicide seriously. An underlying condition such as substance abuse, major depression, or other mood disorders may lead to a preoccupation with dying. Added stressors such as the death of a loved one, divorce, or loss of a job can trigger thoughts of hopelessness or worthlessness and ultimately a suicide attempt. You shouldn't take passive suicidal ideation lightly. It's impossible to predict who's likely going to act on these thoughts. That's why anyone who expresses passive suicidal ideation should be considered at risk for suicide. But how do you diagnose suicidal ideation? When you see your doctor, they'll ask you many questions so they can assess you for the severity of your situation. Some questions your doctor may ask might include, how long have you had suicidal thoughts? Do you have a history of depression? 
How far have your thoughts of suicide gone? Have you come up with a plan? Are you taking any medications, and if so, what are they? Do you use alcohol or drugs? If so, how often? You should also expect your doctor to ask you to take a questionnaire. Your questions will help your doctor evaluate your mental health and help to develop a course of treatment. I am putting in yet another trigger warning here because this is where we actually start talking about the attempts of suicide. A suicidal crisis is a temporary state that occurs in response to overwhelming stress and is associated with seemingly unbearable and undurable emotional and or physical pain. This pain is perceived by the suicidal person as being so severe, permanent, and all-encompassing that there is no practical solution to resolving it other than suicide. Even though the stresses endured by suicidal people seem overwhelming, these problems are generally not truly unsolvable or permanently horrible. They just seem that way to the individual during the crisis. In general, suicidal people are overwhelmed. Their thinking style can be described as negatively biased, intensely self-focused, and irrational. They are not easily able to rationalize their situation or their problems and put them in proper perspective. They are too close to the circumstances that have provoked their suicidal crisis. They cannot see them objectively from a distance as a third-party observer might. Feelings of loneliness, isolation, alienation, anger, rage, and depression are common. Homicidal feelings may be mixed with suicidal feelings if there is a sense that someone has deliberately caused harm to them. And I must add from my own personal experience that most suicidal people don't necessarily want to die. They want the pain, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional. They just want it to stop. And unfortunately, suicide seems to be their only answer to a possible temporary situation. Before I begin the segment on suicide, I just want to briefly mention that I will not be mentioning the means to which someone can kill themselves. That is not information that I am comfortable with sharing. Every suicide is a tragedy. The World Health Organization and the Global Burden of Disease Study estimate that almost 800,000 people die every year from suicide. That is one person every 40 seconds. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, taking the lives of approximately 47,000 Americans each year. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among individuals from the ages of 10 to 34, and the fourth leading causes of death among individuals between the ages of 35 and 54. In 2019, 1.38 million Americans attempted suicide, and 47,511 Americans completed it. And in case you missed that little fact, I stated that there are 10-year-olds out there that are attempting suicide. Suicidal thoughts and behavior should be considered a psychiatric emergency, if you or someone you know is exhibiting either, you should seek immediate assistance from a healthcare provider. You cannot see what a person is feeling on the inside, so it isn't always easy to identify when someone's having suicidal thoughts. However, some outward warning signs that a person may be contemplating suicide include talking about feelings of hopelessness, trapped, or being alone, saying they have no reason to go on living, making a will or giving away personal possessions, searching for a means of doing harm, sleeping too much or too little, eating too little or eating too much, resulting in significant weight gain or loss, engaging in reckless behaviors, including excessive alcohol or drug consumption, avoiding social interactions with others, expressing rage or intentions to seek revenge, showing signs of extreme anxiousness or agitation, having dramatic mood swings, and talking about suicide as a way out. 50 to 75% of those considering suicide will give some sort of a verbal warning. 
It can feel scary, but taking action and getting someone the help they need may help prevent a suicide attempt or death. There's usually no single reason someone decides to take their own life. Several factors can increase the risk of suicide. But more than half of all those people who die by suicide don't have any known mental illnesses at the time of their death. Depression is the top mental health risk factor, but others include bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, and personality disorders. Aside from mental health conditions, other factors that can increase the risk of suicide include poor job security or low levels of job satisfaction, history of being abused or witnessing continuous abuse, being diagnosed with serious medical conditions such as cancer or HIV, being socially isolated or victim of bullying or harassment, a substance use disorder, childhood abuse or trauma, family history of suicide, previous suicide attempts, having a chronic disease, social loss such as the loss of a significant relationship, being exposed to suicide, difficulty seeking help or support, lack of access to mental health or substance use treatments, and following belief systems that accept suicide as a solution to personal problems. If you suspect that a friend or a loved one may be considering suicide, talk to them about your concerns. You can begin the conversation by asking questions in a non-judgmental and a non-confrontational way. Talk openly and don't be afraid to ask direct questions such as, are you thinking about suicide? During the conversation, make sure you stay calm and speak in a reassuring tone. Acknowledge that their feelings are legitimate. Offer support and encouragement and tell them that help is available and they can feel better with treatment. Make sure not to minimize their problems or attempts at shaming them into changing their mind. Listening and showing your support is the best way to help them. You can also encourage them to seek help from a professional. Offer to help them find a healthcare provider, make a phone call, or go with them to their first appointment. It can be frightening when someone you care about shows signs of suicide, but it's critical to take action if you're in a position to help. Starting a conversation to try to help save a life is a risk worth taking. If you're concerned and you don't know what to do, you can get help from a crisis or a suicide prevention hotline. If you live in the United States, try the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. They have trained counselors available 24-7. Stop a Suicide Today is another helpful resource. In cases of immediate danger, if you notice someone doing any of the following, they should get care immediately putting their affairs in order or giving away their possessions, saying goodbye to friends and family, having a mood shift from despair to calm, happy, and at peace. This could be an indication that they have made their decision to end their life, and they're accessing lethal means. If you think someone is in immediate danger of risk of self-harm, call 911 or your local emergency number. Stay with the person until help arrives. Remove any guns, knives, medications, or other things that can cause harm. Listen. Don't judge argue, threaten, or yell. Treatment of suicidal thoughts and behavior depends on your specific situation, including your level of suicide risk and what underlying problems may be causing your suicidal thoughts or behavior. If you've attempted suicide and you're injured, call 911 or your local emergency number. Have someone else call if you're not alone. If you're not injured but you're at immediate risk of harming yourself, call 911 or your local emergency number. Call a suicide hotline number. In the U.S., call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK to reach a trained counselor. Use that same number and press 1 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. At the emergency room, you'll be treated for any injuries. The doctor will ask you questions and examine you, looking for recent or past signs of suicide attempts. Depending on your state of mind, you may need medications to calm you or ease symptoms of underlying mental health conditions, such as depression.
Your doctor may want you to stay in the hospital long enough to make sure any treatments are working, that you'll be safe when you leave, and that you'll get follow-up treatments if you need it. If you have suicidal thoughts but aren't in a crisis situation, you may need outpatient treatment. This treatment may include psychotherapy, medication, addiction treatments, or family support and education. In psychotherapy, also called psychological counseling or talk therapy, you explore the issues that make you feel suicidal and learn skills to help manage emotions more effectively. You and your therapist can work together to develop a treatment plan and goals. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications, and other medications for mental illnesses can help reduce symptoms, which can help you feel less suicidal. Joining an addiction treatment for drug and alcohol addiction can include detoxification, addiction treatment programs, and self-help group meetings. And your loved ones can be both a source of support and conflict. Involving them in treatment can help them understand what you're going through and giving them better coping skills and improve family communications and relationships. Treatment will depend on the underlying cause of someone's suicidal thoughts and behavior. In many cases, though, treatment consists of talk therapy and medication. There's no substitute for professional help when it comes to treating suicidal thinking and preventing suicide. However, there are a few things that may help reduce the suicide risk. Avoid drugs and alcohol. Alcohol and recreational drugs can worsen suicidal thoughts. They can also make you feel less inhibited, which means you are more likely to act on your thoughts. Form a strong support network. This may include family, friends, or members of your church, synagogue, or other place of worship. Religious and spiritual practice has been shown to help reduce the risk of suicide. And get active. Physical activity and exercise has been shown to help reduce depression symptoms. Consider walking, jogging, swimming, gardening, or taking up another form of physical activity that you enjoy. Don't try to manage suicidal thoughts or behavior on your own. You need professional help and support to overcome the problems linked to suicidal thinking. In addition, go to your appointments. Don't skip therapy session or doctor's appointments, even if you don't want to go or you don't feel like you need to. Take your medications as directed. Even if you're feeling well, don't skip your medications. If you stop, your suicidal feelings may come back. You can also experience withdrawal-like symptoms if you stop taking your antidepressant medication. And educate yourself about your condition. Learning about your condition can empower and motivate you to stick to your treatment plan. If you have depression, for instance, learn about its causes and treatments. Pay attention to warning signs. Work with your doctor or therapist to learn about what might trigger your suicidal feelings. Learn to spot the danger signs early and decide what steps to take ahead of time. Contact your doctor or therapist if you notice any changes in how you feel. Consider involving family members or friends and watching for warning signs. Make a plan so you know what to do if your suicidal thoughts return. You may want a written agreement with a mental health provider or loved one to help you anticipate the right steps to take when you don't have the best judgment. Clearly stating your suicidal intention with your therapist makes it possible to anticipate it and address it. Eliminate the potential means of killing yourself. If you think you might act on suicidal thoughts, immediately get rid of any potential means of killing yourself, such as firearms, knives, or dangerous medications. If you take medications that have a potential for overdose, have a family member or friend give you your medication as prescribed. And seek help from a support group. A number of organizations are available to help you cope with your suicidal thinking. I recognize that there are many other options in your life other than suicide. I want to end this episode on a lighter note. I want every single person to know that even though you feel isolated, even though your depression tells you that no one cares or that's not that big of a deal, it's lying. Depression is a dangerous condition to have. It's not a physical ailment that others can see. It's isolating because it's a constant battle within yourself. You can smile your way through the pain and unfortunately, a lot of people fall for it. 
They assume you're okay because they can't see anything wrong. And when they do see a glimpse, you tell them I'm fine, and they choose to believe it. I am here to tell you that your feelings are justified. Your pain is real, and you are most definitely not alone. I found a quote that I want to share with you all. Depression is my life and shadow, which haunts me every day. It's a painful truth. Some days are better than others. It's a struggle at times. If you feel the need to reach out and are too afraid that someone too close will judge you, I will make myself available to listen to your stories. Feel free to email me at twistedmindpodcast at gmail.com. Your voice deserves to be heard, and together, perhaps we can end the stigma behind mental health illnesses. I just want to say a big thank you to all of you, and stay tuned for the next episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at twistedmindpodcast, or again, email me at twistedmindpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, stay strong, guys.